Welcome to the Legal Moves Podcast. I am your host, Zachary Strebeck. And on this episode, I'm talking with two of the folks in charge of Orange Nebula Games, Mark Neidlinger and Tom Matson. Well, hello, sir. How's it going? Hello, hello. Wait, who's who? <laughs> For the audience, so they know <laughs> your is, voice. This is Mark. And I'm Tom. All right, all right. Tom, you've got the more of the baritone voice, I think. Uh, Thank you. I'm, us- I'm using a special filter. This is my podcast filter. <laughs> All right. So first, I'd like to know maybe a little bit about each of your backgrounds and how you got into the tabletop industry. Let's start with Mark. Yeah. So, you know, as is kind of the meta, you know, I've I played games kind of my whole life and actually was in the graphic design kind of agency world for a long, long time doing graphic design, doing brand work and decided Aside from the game nights that I would have monthly or every six weeks or whatever, that I kind of wanted to really take a shot at one myself where I could build a world and put some of those graphic design, story building, world building uh, ideas that I had in my head, see if I could actually make something for me and my friends. Because the daily grind at my job was a little bit mundane, kind of grinding down on me a little bit. So that's kind of how this whole thing started was... I thought I would just take, you know, 20 years of design and branding and those types of things and create something new, you know, for myself instead of for a client, <laughs> to be honest. Right. And Tom? Yeah, I, you know, also, like most people in the board game world, have been playing some form of games my entire life and have also been a lifelong creative, which has manifested in different ways. And I found myself in a career that didn't allow for a lot of creativity. And so I just started really sticking my nose in various different creative enterprises and getting involved and contributing things and actually met Mark through the first Orange Nebula Kickstarter. And we live fairly local to each other and things just kind of took on a life of their own. And here I am. All right. Well, yeah, I'm glad you found your way into the tabletop industry. I, (laughs) I, I, always wanted to design my own games, but I'm not, I've said it on this podcast before. It's just not how my mind works. I guess I like, I'm better off playing them than making them, I suppose. (laughs) All right. And today, so the main topic I wanted to talk about on this episode was one that I've had tons of questions about this over the years from clients, from just users and, and listeners sending me questions. But What happens when you attempt to fund your game on Kickstarter and the campaign doesn't succeed? I wrote fail in my notes, but I don't want to use the word fail. You know, it just doesn't hit its goal. And that's totally fine. Back in 2017, Orange Nebula Games ran a Kickstarter for Epic The Awakening, right? It's since Mm -hmm. changed the name, but at that point, it it missed its funding goal by about $10,000. But soon after you came back, you relaunched it. And then, I mean, it funded in the first 24 hours and broke over $200,000 in funds raised. So I don't know. Mark, I mean, how did that feel to come back? Well, actually, how did it feel to not succeed the first time? And then what made you make that decision to cancel the the campaign? So this is one of the questions that I love because I think the perspective that I have now is that we knew or I knew that it would eventually succeed in some format just because it was a passion project. And I wasn't really concerned about certain funding numbers or whatnot. At a certain point in that first campaign, it probably would have funded, but on the advice of, of you know, Jamie Stegmeyer and a couple others in the industry, I ended it early because I was operating you know, the campaign without 
quite enough information, which is common. Like any endeavor yeah. that's worth taking, you know, there's a lot of learning curve and there's a lot of information you need. And I felt like I was pretty well prepared. I had done a year of study. I had done my homework and thought I had asked all the questions and felt like I was very prepared. But what happens is you learn things in the moment. And one of the two critical things I think I faced in that first campaign where I didn't really understand the ramifications of worldwide shipping and logistics, which is a huge topic. And the second one was timing. Like when you launch a campaign, who else is launching their campaigns and where's the attention going from you know, the market or the demographic? And those two things really kind of created the perfect storm for us in that first campaign. We were up against a cool mini or not a Simon campaign mm-hmm. and an Awaken Realms campaign at the same time. And we were like this little unknown, you know, company and in some respects still are. But the timing was really bad. And then we had some things that just kind of could be improved upon. And so yeah, that first campaign felt like an opportunity to learn. But we weren't really dissuaded. We just were like, we're just gonna make some changes and tweak and relaunch. And I think it was like three weeks later or two weeks later. Something like that. We relaunched and had built a little bit more of a groundswell and were successful in that second campaign, which felt awesome. <laughs> but I guess that, that's the real question. So in that three-week span, what happened? What made you uh, meet your conditions for relaunching? So I think what we did that was the most insightful was just to listen, was just to stop with whatever we thought was right and listen to the comments in the Kickstarter messaging and then ask influencers in the industry, hey, take a look at this campaign. Like, what are some opportunities that we have? What did we do wrong? And it's not always a black and white answer, right? Sometimes you're just doing 400 things and it's the mix of them and it's the timing of them. And so there's a little bit of a nuance there. And it's like cooking, right? It's like, is there too much salt? Or is there, you know, did I bake it too long? Like, there are a number of factors that kind of go into it. And so we took immediately after we canceled that first campaign, took time to ask people what they thought. And we kind of got a lot of feedback. We got feedback from the community and the comments. And, and uh, you know, we just went back and re-equipped. We, we made some modifications and some tweaks. And, you know, I think that's kind of the meta. You see a lot of new companies do that. They feel confident and they go in and they realize that there's a lot more to learn than they thought. And then they come back, you know, a few months later and hopefully they're successful. But I think you have to have your ears and your eyes open if you think that you're going to do it based on the knowledge that you have, I think that's a very limited perspective. You have to really lean into what, what some of the, the expertise is. One of the things that's interesting about Kickstarter as a platform is that Kickstarter, by its very nature, is an early adoption platform. But what you see is that it's full of users who are not early adopters by nature. They are on Kickstarter because it has become almost a, I don't want to say necessary part of the board game community, but it kind of is. You know, many of the biggest and best games come from Kickstarter these days. So people find themselves on there engaging with a system that really isn't conducive to their personality. And so part of having a successful campaign is building one that is a comfortable, safe place for people who are not early adopters. And that means you know, giving them as much information as possible that they feel comfortable. This feels like a safe, known, vetted product project. And so a bunch of things were added from the first to the second campaign that made it feel 
like they could wrap their hands around it a little more, understand how it worked, that invited them into the game world a bit more so that they could really imagine themselves playing the game and what the experience would be. And it also launched with the enthusiasm and excitement of the people who were coming back from the first campaign. So day one, you had people in there, a big community that were enthusiastic and bringing positivity and joy. And there wasn't just a whole bunch of people who were uncertain about something talking about their uncertainty. Right. Do you know how many, uh, what percentage of the backers from the first campaign transitioned into the second campaign? I don't have an actual number, but if I were to guess, it would probably be about 70%. I think we lost, you know, maybe at most a third, maybe not that many. I think there were a lot of people really excited and kind of saw us as the underdog and were cheering us on from the sidelines, you know, come on, we can do this type of a thing because they knew that it was a passion project. And that's my best guess. That's what I was going to guess too. And Kickstarter was a slightly different place then. There weren't quite as many things going on. So if you were into something and it came back three weeks later, you were probably, you hadn't been drawn away by any new shiny thing, generally speaking. Yeah, it's interesting because the, you know, Kickstarter started out as this platform to help the small project become known and come into the world and, you know, get the funding that it otherwise couldn't. So you had a lot of, again, like Tom was saying, it's an early adoption model. So you don't really know what this is and you're investing in it. And what it has become in the board game world is, I expect this thing to be playtested and perfect and the artwork and the story and the world building and the components and everything that I want them to be. Otherwise, this game is garbage. And you get a lot of that from some of the community. There's a smaller part of the community now that kind of sees the heart and wants to support creators, you know, bringing their projects to life, their passion projects and their dream projects to life. But I feel like that's diminished a lot and it's become a marketplace where people are bringing products into the market. And I think when you see the bigger companies, you know, that is basically their primary way of flooding their product into the market. They kind of have a tendency to drown out the little guys. And then the little guys don't really kind of can't play at the same level. They don't have the resources or the experience that the big companies do. And so it's become harder and harder to break into the market. And overall, I would say that there's a, I don't want to say cynical, but there's a very high expectation in the board game demographic for what a product needs to be now to be considered good or great. And everything else falls short and is essentially not worth it. You even see on YouTube, you see a lot of, you know, channels have have popped up, you know, should you back this? And I see a benefit to that and I see a detriment to that. And I think it's really just hard to break into the market with that much of a gated, you know, mentality. I understand. And I do agree that in some ways it's strayed very far from what it was originally supposed to be. Although you do hear the argument that having the bigger companies in there, they bring huge audiences to the platform. And then you know, theoretically, though, now that these other people are on the platform, they can start backing smaller projects. Although I don't know if that works out quite like that in, in real life. Do you have any experience or any insight on that? I think, Tom, you probably have an idea too, but I think it is good, right? It's the same in the coffee industry, right? If another, like say Starbucks, moves into an area where there's another coffee shop, the old thinking was that that was bad for the old coffee shop because Starbucks is going to steal all their patrons. But the truth is, what it does is is it improves the coffee culture in that area. And so more and more people start drinking coffee and it's good for both. And I think that that's probably true to a certain extent. I do think that it's still difficult. Like you just have to come 
ready. Like you have to do your homework and you have to make sure that your design is on and the mechanics are sound and you have playthrough videos and you have reviews. And I mean, it's a platform where you're showcasing essentially a finished product now and not an idea that you're trying to bring into the world. And so there is something that has been lost with how Kickstarter started and it is now a marketplace. And I don't want to say it's neither good nor bad because I feel like really connected to the original intent behind Kickstarter. And I think that that's not quite as prevalent, at least in the board game space. I think it is in some of the other verticals or categories that they have yeah. on Kickstarter. Comic books and things like that. Maybe. Yeah. And you see that, you know, a successful comic book one is like $20,000, right? Whereas a board game will be in the millions. And so it's, yeah, it's just, a, it's a strange yeah. and wondrous place to be. Yeah. I think having the massive, you know, miniatures campaigns, they have had a positive effect in that they have grown the size of the Kickstarter audience. So if played right, a smaller campaign can make more than they would have before because there are more people checking Kickstarter for games. It's become a bigger part of the industry, and so more people are there. There is still a timing nuance to that, though, where, yes, the two or three massive companies using Kickstarter for their $7 million campaigns have overall grown the Kickstarter audience. You don't necessarily want to be up against them when your campaign is live. Exactly. So something that we have done the last couple of years is launch at times that all our industry peers tell us are crazy. You know, we will launch over the <laughs> holidays or in some weird window where, you know, common sense says that no one's going to be on their computers looking at Kickstarter games. But then we end up being the only show in town. So some people are still looking and it, it has served us fairly well. And I think, you know, it's a, so it's a double-edged sword. They have grown the audience. They have also attracted that larger body of people who never would have used Kickstarter. It's the non-early adopters that I'm talking about that are the people that are demanding a finished product because that's what they're comfortable with. So it, it has grown it in some ways to its detriment, in other ways to creators' benefits. You know, five years ago, a massive board game Kickstarter success was 200,000. You know, when, when Scythe broke a million, it was incredible. And now that happens every month. So it's a good and a bad. It's just, it's just a, I don't know that it's either really. It's just changed the landscape and it has to be navigated differently. Yeah. And just one more thought on that. Mm -hmm. I think what it's done is it's increased the capacity or the potential for a campaign in terms of numbers and community. It hasn't necessarily made it easier to break in. In fact, I think that the Kickstarter board game market is flooded. And so you see a lot. I mean, too many. It used to be you could back everything there was on Kickstarter. Now you can't possibly do that financially. And so it's really Maybe harder you. to pick out the gems, <laughs> you know? Sorry. So yeah. Some people certainly try. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you could throw a dollar at them, I guess, uh, be a super backer. Anyway, uh, so after your first Kickstarter then succeeded, I guess the second one succeeded, since then it seems like with each new game or each new campaign, you've, you've increased your audience, you've increased the um, amount raised. I mean, do you have any secrets of your success uh, behind that? Or is it, I don't know, what do you, what do you think? What's driven that? Well, we're very focused on our brand, and our brand is community. And it's, it's other things as well. But on Kickstarter, if we just want to talk about this 
narrowly focused. There are basically two ways to succeed. You can tap into people's biggie size me, minis, give me more, give me more mentality, which, you know, there's some flash in the pan success available there. Obviously, those are the, you know, $5 million campaigns. But the community that you build, generally speaking, with that sort of approach tends to be shallow and it tends to be about the things that you don't want. It tends to lead to negative conversations and the community just making demands of you. We think that crowdfunding is, we take a different approach where we focus on the people who want to be a part of something. We think that when someone backs a project or buys a product in the world, they're making a statement to themselves, about themselves. So we make our campaigns focus much more on the heart behind the product, the heart behind our community, so that people get to be excited about something together and we give them a platform to express themselves and be involved and be a part of the creation. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, I've I've mentioned a couple of times now the early adopter thing, One of the things that you can do as a company to make people comfortable with your unproven product is if your company is what they're comfortable with. So we have made establishing Orange Nebula as a community-focused company with people that you know and trust a big part of our mission. And so we're very active on social media. We send handwritten notes with everything that people order, not fulfilling it. 15,000 order Kickstarter campaign. But when people order things from our website, you know, we're very engaged and hands-on. We have our own podcast that's basically like a running diary entry. It's like Orange Nebula self-therapy. So people get to be a part of what we're doing. And that becomes a large part of what draws them in. And so then the conversations in our campaigns are much more about creativity and light and being together about something more. And people have a very positive reaction to it, and they like to be a part of that. That's the short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Tom's exactly right. I mean, we're building a brand, right, has a lot of different meanings to people. I think if you asked, people wouldn't necessarily refer to us as a company. They see us more as a community, at least the ones that feel part of it. We are a circle. And we encourage people to have conversations with us in social spaces. And, you know, they influence what we make. And this is a passion and it is a business. It's both. And I think if you lost the passion part of it, then we would become a conveyor belt that I think people would not nearly be as excited about. Excellent. So last year, obviously, with the pandemic and all that, I've asked a few of the guests that I've had on the on the show, you know, how that affected their business or what changes need to be made. And as that's still ongoing, as of the time we're recording this, I'm wondering what, uh, if you guys have any input on that, how it's maybe affected your business. Even oh boy. just for some context, like, you know, playtesting new games, uh, advertising new games, you know, dip in Kickstarter backers or, or has there been more interest because people are home or you know, that kind of thing. From my perspective, I mean, everything's interconnected, right? So if someone is hurting because of what happened with COVID, then everybody else, you know, is connected to that at some point. Obviously, you look at Amazon sales are up billions of dollars because, you know, people aren't going out, they're not doing events. So there's a lot more of a stay home mentality. Overall, I think that's been good for board games. 
it's not something that we were necessarily able to capitalize on just because of timing issues. It slowed down playtesting dramatically, and that really hurt us in terms of timing for Unsettled, our new uh, sci-fi game. And it has dramatically impacted our timeline as well. So we've taken advantage of that to try to improve you know, the game and the experience that people get. Logistics issues are crazy in the world and you know the carriers I know that as we went into the holidays the carriers actually were putting caps on the amount of packages that they would deliver for these big brands because they just couldn't handle it yeah the ports are limiting the number of containers that come in each day you know we've had a container on the water outside of Europe now for about a month that you know oh it'll be in in four days and that's been sort of the word for three weeks now and then that isn't the case in other parts of the world. So everything's just kind of this moving target of confusion. Yeah. I mean, at first glance, it would be really easy to assume, oh, well, you know, board game industry sales are up. You guys should be killing it right now. And that's nothing could be further from the truth. You know, for us as a small company with, you know, essentially only a couple of products, it has slowed us down is what it's done. I think, you know, if we had warehouses full of product ready to sell, we might have been able to capitalize on that. But that's just hasn't been our model with the crowdfunding model that we have. And we also have a mentality where we like to keep our product limited in the market so that, you know, it's not sitting in warehouses, you know, on shelves, you know, waiting to be discounted and wholesaled out at a loss. We want it to be in demand. We want people, you know, we want our product to retain its value for our retailers. And, you know, we want it to be, you know, accessible, but you know, not necessarily everywhere all the time. And so all of those things kind of together, I would say, have put us in a space where we feel like we have focused on the future and some of these new things that we're making, while at the same time trying to keep the flow of, you know, the promises that we've made in the manufacturing, keeping everything flowing as quickly as possible, communicate with our community as much as we can. But it does feel like a slog. It feels like we're just walking through a swamp and I cannot wait for it to end like everybody else. <laughs> it, it did introduce some interesting opportunities if there's a silver lining within the community. Just last year being what it was, I think there was just a global vulnerability that people were willing to express. So the conversations that we were able to have in the social spaces with community members, I think, have sort of open doors to bringing people closer together and everyone's seen each other as human beings, at least in our closed community, there's been a trajectory in that direction. And that's good to hear. Hopefully that <laughs> spreads throughout the whole industry. So as a wrap up, I think what would be good is to ask if either of you or both of you maybe have some advice for a first time Kickstarter creator or game designer or whatever's on your mind, I guess. Maybe one short thing from each of you. Mark, first. I think if you're breaking out with something that is your passion, there's a couple things I would say. The first one is don't be overly concerned with what everybody else thinks. Make sure that you love it when it's time to be on stage. Do everything that you can you know, to be detail-oriented, do your homework, and this is your time on stage. The lights are on. It's your time to shine. Put everything into it that you possibly can. Do your homework be disciplined, and then just let people receive it the way they're going to. Do not worry too much about criticism or worry too much about negative feedback. That's going to be there no matter what. The bigger stage you're on, the more of that you're going to get. 
It doesn't have to be for everyone. It doesn't have to be for the naysayers and people who choose to be hypercritical because they're everywhere. I will tell you that. There's another group out there that is dying to see what you are going to bring into the world and they can't wait to enjoy it with you and share it with their people. And there's people in your life that are probably have been waiting and hoping and praying that for a day that you would come and bring your whole self and bring something into the world because it's going to touch way more people than you think it will. So make it count. Don't skip steps and, you know, cherish the moment that you have. Excellent. And Tom, you got anything for, uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, particularly if you're going to crowdfund it, that you do need to do your homework. You need to look at what people are doing right now and what has historically worked because Kickstarter changes a lot year to year and you know talk to people be humble take their advice see what's going on and really do do your homework it's not easy it is not by any means a get rich quick scheme on the other hand remember that you are making something unique that only you can make and you know, so take people's advice, listen to what they're saying, seek out experts and be respectful of their knowledge, but also know that you are making your own thing and you have to listen to your gut and you have to listen to your heart and you have to trust that if you make something that is special and unique and that you're putting something into the world that is different, people are going to be drawn to it and your crowd will find you and they will want to be a part of what you're making and don't let fear or anxiety put you into a position where you're trying too hard to do what other people have done because people can sense your passion and they're drawn like moths to flame to that. And you should make sure that that is at the front of everything that you do. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Exactly. Well, this was excellent. I appreciate you both coming on. Where can we find you on the internet? Or where can we find Orange Nebula games, I guess? We are at Orange Nebula on just about everything. So we're, we're on, on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook is our most active space. We have a podcast called The Outpost Podcast, which you can find through our, our website, which is orangenebula.com. It's also on all the major podcasting platforms where we talk about creativity. It's not really a board game podcast per se. It's more of a creative, insightful thinking podcast. Excellent. All right. And uh, audience, you can find me at gamelawyerblog.com. I don't do the Twitter or any of that stuff. So yeah, find me on the website and you can, you can make an appointment there. That's been it. Tom and Mark, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Excellent. And I will see everyone next time.